Welcome to Fundraising Stories with Female Founders. I'm Julia Elliott-Brown, the founder and CEO of Enter the Arena. I'm a serial entrepreneur and an expert in raising investment and business growth. Our mission at Enter the Arena is to empower female founders to fly through pre-raise and investment and onto the exponential growth of their business with investment expertise and business coaching. Here we share the stories of inspirational female founders who've raised investment to inspire you to do the same. You'll hear their honest accounts of what it was really like to secure funding, the highs, the lows and the challenges they experienced on the journey. And along the way, we'll discuss top tips for how you can be successful too. Today I'm speaking with Priya Downs, the founder and CEO of Nudea. Now, Nudea is a beautiful underwear brand that's super comfortable and really fits with contemporary designs, all made from recycled fabrics. Their ethos is to be body inclusive and their approach is digital first. Priya launched Nudea in 2019, and since then, the brand has grown exponentially, acquiring over 15,000 customers in the last two years and generating half a million pounds in revenue in the process. Priya comes from a background in luxury fashion, having spent 10 years at Burberry and Chanel, as well as a few years working at the World Bank, helping to drive the sustainability agenda in the fashion industry. She has an MBA from INSEAD in Paris and is passionate about entrepreneurship and driving female leadership in the business world. Now, in 2021, Priya raised a total of £750,000 in investment to help her take Nudea to the next level. So let's meet Priya and find out how she did it and what she learned along the way. Welcome, Priya. Hi, thank you for having me. A pleasure to see you. <laughs> yeah. Your smiling face. <laughs> Yes. Right. <laughs> let's talk about bras and knickers, one of my favorite. Yes, let's, absolutely. Um, and of course, there's, there is no shortage of underwear brands out there, Marks and Spencers dominating alongside, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of, of niche independent brands and lots of innovation going on in, in this space. And I'm really interested to know how you spotted a gap in the underwear market where you could do something new. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's as you say, it's a really exciting category, um, and there's so much change happening, um, and it, it, it is, as you say, quite competitive. There's, there's a, there's a lot of brands out there, but what we saw in the market was the, the UK market's worth three and a half billion pounds, and Marks and Spencers has still dominates that. You know, it owns about thirty-two percent of the market share still. Um, and Marks and Spencers obviously has been a mainstay of our high street for, uh, well, almost 30 years, um, it, particularly for bras. And what I think it, you know, for a lot of modern women who want something that's a little bit more design focused, a bit more sustainable, especially in today's age, and also something that's digital first, MS you know, very much still relies on the physical fitting room. Um, you know, much of its sales are done through its retail stores, physical retail stores. And yes, I, I, I imagine that a lot of that did shift online, but it isn't a digital first business. And, and I think we saw a gap in kind of in creating something that was more modern um, all round, not only from, you know, offering a digital first 
option from not just from you know the product point of view but also from the fitting point of view you, you know Nudea is digital from fitting all the way to try on and you know we support uh, bra wearers um, throughout that entire bra purchasing journey but we also just wanted to make something a bit more inspiring and confidence building and I think that for so long um, bras have been sold to men um, and there's a lot of bedroom lingerie brands out there but what we really wanted to create was something that was for the modern woman by women who understand what women need uh, you know this is something that you wear every day and it should be fit for purpose it should be comfortable it should be it's something you wear close to your skin um, it should be flattering and it should suit you no matter your size or shape and I think that's that's really important and from the marketing point of view we know we we wanted to create something that was that was reflective of that you know we use models that are diverse shapes and sizes and you know that's something that actually you know other brands have been slow to pick up but yeah it's changing but we saw that you know three years ago there what there wasn't really that and and for us that's been a mainstay ethos for us so I think really we saw lots and lots of things that weren't really happening and that we wanted to kind of you know um we, we saw the market changing and we wanted to jump on that so you know there's the the idea of sustainable first digital first the convenience around bra shopping but also, you know, this this element of something a bit more modern for women. Yeah, much needed, I think. I mean, the days of having to go into uh, <laughs> to M&S and have a bra fitting. I mean, you know, very glad to see that those are going to be behind us soon. Um. <laughs> yes, I mean, you know, lots lots of our customers say that, you know, I mean, we, we know that from our own research that 80% of women are wearing the wrong bra size. But what we found is that the biggest reason for that is this inertia around getting fitted. So, so many women just don't just don't bother getting fitted. Um, many of them never have. Um, lots and lots of them have um, not not done it within sort of the last three to five years. Um, in fact, 75 percent of women haven't been fitted in over over three years. So it's a huge percentage. So it's no wonder people are wearing the wrong bra size. And if you are wearing something every day that you want it to be comfortable, it has to fit you properly. And size is a big factor of that. So, you know, we saw that as a really important impetus to try to do something differently. And that's why we've created our own fitting tools, you know, including our trademark fit tape, just to make it really easy for people to find their size at home, because that is that is the start of your bra journey. You have to get the right size in order to get the right fit in order to get something that you actually feel comfortable wearing. That's mm, so important. I think women today are not prepared to, to wear things that aren't going to be comfortable. Yeah. So obviously you've got lots of experience in the fashion sector, but where do you start with building an underwear brand like this? How did you get it off the ground? It's a, it's a very good question. And I think like a lot of these things, it was a happy, happy accident. I was working briefly for a brand um, sort of between Burberry and when I started my own brand where I met um, a very um, senior designer who used to work at Victoria's Secret. And we were at this brand, it was, it was Fiorucci. And when we were at Fiorucci, we worked together uh, very closely on launching Fiorucci's lingerie range. And this was a completely new category for me, you know, working at Burberry, I'd only really worked on, you know, standard luxury 
ready to wear. So, you know, T-shirts, trousers, accessories. And so I'd never really had exposure to lingerie at all. And um, it really opened my eyes. I think, you know, it sort of it made me really evaluate what I was doing in my own purchasing behavior for lingerie. And I, I kind of realized how how much I'd neglected it and, and, and how much I didn't have I had no options. And it, it kind of inspired me to go, actually, this is a fantastic category to to do something in. And having Sophie there, um, who, you know, who was working with me at the time, kind of she sort of opened my eyes to that. And and together we kind of came up with the concept and the idea. And that's how it all really began. And of course, Sophie, being um, this veteran in the lingerie industry, had a lot of knowledge um, and a lot of experience. And and that's kind of that's how it all really started. Um, And yeah, it's a very complicated category. I don't think you know it's it's nothing like making t-shirts you know lingerie is very is is very much about engineering as much as it is about design and you really have to know what you're doing uh that you know the fashion industry is tiny the lingerie industry is even tinier and it's it's very much about you know you know having great factory relationships understanding how to develop product so there's a lot of industry knowledge that's needed and we're very lucky because we have a you know a great advisory board many of whom have come from lingerie backgrounds whether it's from marketing all the way all the way to product so I think that all makes a difference because it is not an easy category and it's not an easy category from design to marketing all the way through the journey it is has its own nuances and its own challenges that really I don't think there's I've ever come across a category product category working working in fashion that's ever been so difficult Um, because as you can imagine with bras there's a huge size range um, that you know that has that has inventory implications, that has um, product development implications, and then you know when you start to get into marketing, you know you you find that things like your ads get banned on market on Facebook because um, of what the algorithms think and nudity, and so it it's it has so many challenges that are not uh, that make it so unique, but also really fun. Hugely complicated. Hugely complicated. yes. And I imagine also, I mean, I'm imagining reasonably expensive for you to get that concept from idea through to creating designs, testing, producing minimum quantities through to, uh, you know, to launch marketing. Did it take that funding piece at the beginning? You know, we, are you talking tens of thousands or was it a lot more to get it to that? Oh, I mean, we, so we, um, so we were very lucky that I was in a position um, to invest my own money into it. And my husband was ex venture capital and together we had a bit of money set aside that we wanted to put towards the business. And we did. And we asked our plan was always to put, um, you know, a couple of hundred thousand into it to get it to um, a minimum of our proposition. So to get it to launch. And that's exactly exactly what we did. Um, of course, when we launched, it was right before COVID and we we wanted to go to the market and our plan was to raise right after we launched. And, you know, I definitely count myself lucky. You know, we it's we didn't have to worry about raising um, when we didn't have a product. We didn't we didn't have a website. You know, I think it's really challenging to raise when you've just got a concept um and a business plan but I'm not saying it's impossible but I think it's harder and I think 
because we were able to fund it ourselves, it we, we could just get going quicker and just focus on kind of getting something up and running and something tangible for investors to look at. And that was our plan. But of course, when that time arrived, it was right before COVID and we started to have initial conversations with investors and we were really going after angels. Um, we weren't looking to raise a, a massive round. Um, and But still, I think there was a massive flight to risk People were panicking. Nobody knew what COVID was about then. And, you know, we we were very worried about um, wasting a lot, not wasting a lot of time, but, you know, not maybe getting the best deal. So we st- we basically just stopped. I took a decision to just stop trying and just buckle down, try to, you know, pull the purse strings a bit tighter and and you know just just try and find a way to make it through a few more months and perhaps start again um those few months turned into in the end 18 months so we didn't actually close our our first external raise until about um 16 17 months later but um i think it was the best thing we did i think it helped it helped bump up our valuation it helped get us to you know at least 12 months of revenue and and we, you know, we we did really well in the first twelve months. You know, you can imagine our our brand is built for the for the COVID generation and post pandemic generation. You know, everyone shifted online. Our tape was a massive hook through the pandemic. We got tons and tons of PR, and we achieved a lot in those first twelve months. And so, being able to stretch ourselves, although it was challenging, I think was one of the best things we did. And in the end, you know, it made when everybody was ready um, with their checkbooks after COVID, had, you know, COVID had calmed down, investors sort of found their feet again. Um, uh, we were able to kind of raise a lot more easily, a lot more quickly. Um, investing always takes time. So I'm, I'm not saying we did it in weeks, but, you know, it, it certainly it certainly would have taken a lot, a lot longer had we persisted the first time around. And um and so, yeah, and it kind of made for a successful, a successful raise at the time. And, you know, it was a, it was a challenging first 12 months, but exciting because we were on the right side of the pandemic as a, as a business. So and we achieved a lot in those first 12 months. And a lot of those achievements went went, to, you know, increasing our valuation and getting us a better deal. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing how much hustle you can do when you've got no resources. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Very creative when you have to act like that. And um, and also, I think great that you recognise very quickly that you would have been banging your head against a brick wall to try and do that raise because first time raises in 2020 went, you know, through the floor. Yeah. Um, Investors just pushed all their money into their existing portfolio and into further stage businesses. It was really, really hard for first time founders. So, um, a hundred percent. Yeah. And I think also um, it's challenging enough. And I think we're going to talk about that later about, you know, being a consumer brand very early on. And I think that would only have made it even more challenging, you know, um, at that time being so early. Mm. Um, so I think I think it was the right it ended up being the right thing to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But as you say, so then you decided when you were, you know, you were then ready to go out and speak to angels. So let's talk about that round because it mm-hmm. is all it is hard, isn't it, as a founder of a consumer brand, particularly in fashion, to yeah. find the right investors because so many investors will just say, no, I'm only interested in tech, I'm only interested in B2B. How did you go about it? 
Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. I think the I think the challenge with with fashion and retail, and you know we we you you opened on it um, when you first introduced introduced the brand of myself is that you know it is crowded. There's a lot of brands out there. There's a lot of brands that want to be here, and and I think that it's it's really hard for investors to see, um, you know. Because it's it's a it's a feeling it's a gut you know brands are emotional it's not as straightforward as uh, you know a tech tech model or a B two B model and so it's it's um makes that even more a bit more challenging and also I think a lot of brands really benefit from investors that are from the retail space because they understand it and I think the the a lot of re, a lot of people who've come from the retail background and you know are the best investors because they understand how to build brands um, and there's very few of them around so you know all of these challenges sort of present um, you know a very small small pool of investors who are interested and an even smaller pool of, of investors who are interested and can add value so that does make it challenging and you know what I sort of went after was um, spent a lot of time reaching my own network. Um, you know, I'm lucky having gone to INSEAD that I've got a rich network of, of people who are savvy investors um, and, you know, just spent a lot of time. And I think in those 12 months that I wasn't able to raise, I actually built a, an investor map. You know, I spent time kind of looking at my own network, looking at other deals that have happened in the retail space that I was aspiring to and working backwards and saying, well, how did they get there? How did they get that path to that great VC fund that they raised 20 million pounds from? Um, you know, where did they start? Like, what was their journey? Who were they key people in the early days? Who were, the, were they angels? Were they funds? Um, and, and, you know, looked at sort of, you know, Scout, like literally was on company's house, for hours sort of scouting similar companies and looking at their journeys and saying who are the you know are there common angels is there an is there sort of an in investor base of angels that are um you know uh, like that whose name appears you know often along these deals and and i just kind of targeted them i said right i'm going to go after a targeted bunch of people and a bunch of investors that I know are going to be interested in what I do um, they may not necessarily like it but at least I'm in the right ballpark and that's really how it started and and then very early on in my fundraising plan I came across Cornerstone and they're absolutely amazing bunch of people and you know great great um, network of angels and actually they helped me as well because they you know they gave me my first term sheet and they said, right, you want to raise a bit more, um, you know, we're not, we can't do your whole round, but here we can help you get to the next, to, you know, the rest of it. And they were really great. You know, they introduced me to a lot of people um, and that's how the ball got rolling. And I think once you're, once you've kind of got one term, you know, you've got one offer, it then sort of snowballs, doesn't it? Because you've kind of got then something in your back pocket to go to other investors with and and then it just becomes easier. Um, but yeah, it's just nailing that first one. I was lucky to get Cornerstone. And, um, and but it was very, you know, it was very strategic. I, I did spend a lot of time doing my homework and that would be my advice to anyone, you know, really spend time kind of focusing on companies that you aspire to or that, you know, you think 
um, you you kind of admire their fundraising strategy and work backwards and say, well, what did they do? How did they do it? You know, who who were some of the key players? Um, and really, that's that's how I've done it, and that's how I will continue to do it. Um, you know, when I look at my next raise, I'll be following you know a path that um, you know I researched and um, spent time looking at. And of course, the investor market's always evolving, so you have to keep refreshing that. But for me, it's it's the strategy that I think is is probably the best one because you could spend a lot of time, uh, you know, basically sending cold emails and not really getting anywhere, and it can be quite disheartening as well. Mm. Um, so, yes, I mean, you have to have a strong stomach for it. You have to obviously be prepared for people not liking your business, critiquing it, rejecting you, and believe me, you you will get that right. You will get nobody. Not every single person is going to like you, but you just need one or two that believe in you and there is someone out there that will. And, and then once you've, once you've got it, then it, it, it's kind of a snowball. Investors are kind of amazingly like, sh- not like sheep, but they are very, very much. Once you've kind of got one person to back you, they then kind of go, okay, well, in that case, I'll, I'm, you know, I'm ready to help you too. So there, there is this sort of momentum thing that you need to build. Similarly to crowdfunding, you know, once you kind of got one person in, everybody's like, oh, I, I kind of want to be in too. So you just have to get that first one. Yeah, I mean, that, the desk-based research pays off in spades. You know, and it feels at the time like it's taking up a lot of your day. Mm-hmm. But the amount of effort, wasted effort that you cut out as a consequence is huge. And as you said, it's so right. Once you get that first investor, it just de-risks it for everybody else and also kind of ups the ante on the FOMO front because nobody else wants to miss it. Yes, exactly. Cornerstone exactly. are in. Oh, this must be good, you know. So And I think it's also psychological. I mean, I, you know, I've I'm not a natural salesperson. I'm the first person to admit it. And um, and there are times when when you are pitching and you can get disheartened, you know, you can kind of go you know, maybe this is, maybe my, my confidence isn't seeping through because, you know, I've had, I've come off the back of 10 rejections and now I'm doing another pitch that I feel a bit like, oh, um, and, and you can't underestimate the power that sometimes just having one person support you and kind of go, yes. And then suddenly you kind of feel, I mean, I certainly felt myself being a bit more confident, you know, going forward and then pitching to investors, knowing that, you know, and, knowing that I've got somebody that backs me and, you know, that I've got that. Yes. And that does, that also helps you with your pitch, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Conf- I mean, confidence is such an important factor, isn't it? And it's, yes. if you can figure out a way to step into that confidence, even before you've got that first, yes, then you can radiate that. Um, absolutely. It, yeah, absolutely. Long, you know, when you've got that ninth, 10th, 11th, 12th, you know, no in a row to keep picking yourself up off the floor is, but that's, you know, that's what it takes as an entrepreneur, isn't it? That resilience to just keep on going until you get what you need. Yeah. And I think you, you do, you do have to prepare yourself. I think that's, that's always my advice to anyone starting a business is that, you know, if you are a founder, you are partly chief sales officer for raising money and that you have to be prepared to have a strong stomach for it because it is a, you know, there are a lot of investors out there and it's a big, big um, haystack um, and you're looking for a needle and, you know, you will get a lot of people saying no and, and also critiquing your business, giving you negative feedback, being quite critical. 
and you have to be able to deal with that um and know that and can continue to you know believe in yourself and believe in what you're doing and that is tough but you know if you're prepared for it and as you said like you you sort of have tactics to kind of pick yourself up again and you know get that confidence back and put your game face on and keep going um then that's that's exactly what's needed Yes. I mean, it can feel sometimes like you are just constantly fundraising when you're building a high growth business. But but having good support around you is really important, isn't it? And you yes. mentioned earlier about your advisory board. Um, yeah. And it's great to hear. You know, I th- my view is that it's never too soon to start building that advisory board because they can help you in so many ways. What, what is what's your view on that? Did you bring those people on board? yeah I think so yeah so we you know we were really lucky that we had some really good industry experts who wanted to be on our advisory board and I think for us that was that's not only do they help you not only do they bring their expertise in guiding you on how to grow the business but they also are great ambassadors you know and particularly when you are trying to fundraise having ambassadors in the industry who are going to shout about you and leverage their own contacts and say, look, I'm working for this, I'm, you know, I'm advising this great brand. Um, check it out. Take, take a look at it. You know, I'm involved. Um, I'm advising them. I think that also has a lot of weight. Um, so, but, you know, fundamentally it is important to have a good advisory board, good advisors, um, because, you know, it's not always going to be easy. You're not always going to do things right. And, you know, you have to, you have to want to do, you know, you, you're doing the best for the business and you want to um, pull as much expertise as you can. So trying to get some really good advisors who know the industry, who know your category um, and can perhaps fill the knowledge gaps that you don't have as a founder or the founding team don't have, then it's a really great way to leverage that. And I think as a startup as well, you can't pay people big, big big tickets so having advisors who you know are willing to give up their time if you're very lucky for for free or willing to sort of give up their time for a bit of equity or willing to give up their time for a small consultancy fee is a price worth paying um so i think it's it's definitely worth um trying to get some good advisors in and on a personal level having good mentors you know maybe they do, they're not people who are who know anything about your business or your category, but they know you um, very well, or they've worked with you in the past. Um, and I think that that's really important. I mean, I've had personal mentors who are not on our board, advisory board, but they have personally guided me through my own journey and they know me and they know my aspirations and my passions and they want to do, they, they want me to be the best that I can be um, and a success. And so they're, they're the ones that are going to be honest. They're the ones that are going to say to you, have you thought about this? They're going to be critical, asking the difficult questions. And again, all this is so valuable for when you, when you want to go fundraise, because you do want to try to bat out and know the answers to all the difficult questions when you get them, because you will get them. And so it's best to, best to kind of um, know how to deal with them early and maybe even crack them early. You know, if, if an advisor gives you feedback and says, maybe you just need to work on this before you go for a fundraise, I would strongly suggest you do it, you know? Um, so it's, it's um, I think it's really invaluable, really valuable to start, surround yourself early on with a good advisory board for your business, but also personal mentors who, you know, who have your best interests at heart and, 
and then you know indirectly have the best interests of your company at heart because they want you to do the best and they're going to be critical and that's great yeah fully prepare you for that investment raise and as you say having that extended team those advisors with skills and experience very attractive for investors obviously your, your business itself is very attractive to investors because they can see the potential, they can see this, the gap that you're filling in the market. Um, couple of, those are two things I know that, that, that made investors feel very attracted to you. What, yeah. what about the valuation? Let's have a, a, a chat about that. You know, how, yes. how hard was it to kind of figure out like, okay, I think I've got this great business, but what on earth is it worth? What's the price? Yeah, it's so difficult. I mean, I think obviously once you've had your first raise, it then, isn't it, it it's sort of a little bit out of your hands after that but um when you're doing your first raise it is it is challenging isn't it I think that you don't you when we did our sort of first term sheet deal it was a lot of haggling you would do all expect to you would expect to be haggled and that and that's natural and that's normal um I think you know being the person I am I'm quite logical um you know I'm not particularly um as you put it, um, you know, I, I do things quite sort of mathematically and I did sort of take quite a mathematical approach and was quite sensible about it. You know, I, I looked at I looked at similar companies at our stage, um, did some industry benchmarking and then looked at our revenues and where we were and how much money we put into it. And all these factors, you know, meant that I came up with a valuation that was sensible, you know, like when I went to investors and I sort of said, this is what I think my company's worth. Um, they were like, hmm, it doesn't sound too too off kilter. Because I think a lot of the time, it is one of the first questions that investors ask you. And if you do have a crazy number, they almost sh- shut the conversation down. They'll be like, oh, no, yeah, no, you know. So I think um, having sort of opening up with a sensible-ish valuation, I think is a much warmer way um, to to start the conversation. And I feel like that that helped me because I didn't go go with something crazy. And the way that I sort of tested that was I went to my advisors and said, look, hey, you know, um, I want to I want to raise around this is what we think it should be. What are your thoughts? And, you know, spoke to some friendly investors that perhaps I wouldn't pitch to, but um, they, you know, the different sectors and said, look, this is my company. This is the revenue rate we're at. This is, um, you know, how much you've grown in the first year. This is how much money we've put in. What are your thoughts? And they were like, yeah, sounds about, sounds about right. You know, and I think that that again is research you have to put into it I wouldn't you know you really can't just pluck a number out of the sky and hope for the best um again I I think the most valuable thing you can do is industry benchmarking you know look at companies um that have raised at a similar point in their in their journey um and then adjust it for where you are with your journey i.e you know is your revenue the same as them probably not so you can adjust it for that and um you know how much money have you put in that's already gone in uh, versus what they have and then adjust it that way and then you know when we went to cornerstone we had a valuation in mind and actually they they weren't that you know they weren't that far off and we had a little bit of negotiation but in the end you know we we walked away with something that i think i was in the ballpark of thinking that's about right and they were like that's about right so um and then ever since then obviously it's been set by um you know, uh, well, we haven't had to raise another round, another multiple, but I think the next round will be another question about what the valuation should be. But um, 
but yes, it's um, it is a question. It is a difficult one. But you know, I think there are, there are ways to get to sensible numbers, and and it is important to get to a sensible number because you can put investors off if you have a crazy valuation. Got to be in the right ballpark. That's for sure. I think so. Yeah. And then it's about doing everything you can to push your valuation up to the top of that ballpark. I think. Yes, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Then yeah. gives you more wiggle room, you know, to do those further raises without selling too much equity, make sure that you've still got, you know, enough mm-hmm. business. So on that note, in terms yeah. of fundraisers, so you did an initial round, I think it was 600 and then another 150. Yeah. And then now you're going out to crowdfund. In fact, actually, when this episode comes out, I think you will be in the middle of that crowdfund. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. An exciting so, yes. new journey, which I've, I'm learning a lot about as yeah. we live and breathe it. So what, so, you've got angels on board what was behind the decision to go out and now crowdfund for the business um a couple of things i think that we we felt um the timing uh you know we we wanted to um we wanted to uh, we've just a lot of things happening in the business like we've just launched with with john lewis um and we are waiting um for our b corp certification and there's a few things that we really wanted to sort of get under our belt before we went for sort of a really big round um which is what we're hoping for in our next round sort of a more vc based type of round um and so just the timing of the business operations and where and you know how fast we were moving and the direction just meant that we needed to have um you know a cash you know, a cash injection. And we always planned when we did our initial round last year that we would go to the, we would go for a funding raise at the beginning of this year. That was always the plan. Um, so, so we knew that that was going to happen. It was just a question of how we were going to raise at this point. And um, initially we had, you know, we had thought we would be, it would be VC or bigger funds. And then I think because of what was happening in the business, we just felt we wanted to, we wanted to wait a little bit longer um, and get some of those, those wins under our belt before we went and get ourselves into a really strong position to to pitch to VCs and so I think that that's that was one reason and the other reason really was because we wanted to build an army of brand ambassadors you know lingerie is a category that's very much about um uh you know repeat purchasing loyalty uh telling your friends about it and we know that from our own marketing efforts you know we know that the best performing channels for us are referrals, our PR, endorsement based. And that, you know, it's one of those categories where like, if I ask you, where did you get, I can ask you where you got your jumper from because it's very visible, but I wouldn't say to you, where'd you get your bra from? <laughs> so it, it, it relies on people kind of saying, oh, I bought this amazing bra, you need to try it. And I think that um, you can't underestimate the power of that. And um, we certainly know that it's a very, very loyal category. And we wanted to use the crowdfund as a way to build people, who, you know, build, build an army of brand ambassadors. And that's, again, a real notch to have on our belt before we go for a bigger raise. So this is very much a strategic stepping stone to a bigger raise. Um, but, you know, it was also coincided with things that were happening in the business that meant that we felt like, let's do this and we've got our amazing angels backing us that can kind of lead this and we can leverage it and make it a huge success and for you know fortunately fingers crossed it stays that way we've had a really 
you know, overwhelming amount of interest. And already, you know, 24 hours into our, our initial preview, we've already hit our target. So I think we've been, it, you know, it's been amazing to see the support and the, um, the uh, just demand, I guess, for wanting to be part of our journey. And that's what we wanted to create. We wanted to create, it was as much of a PR exercise as it was a fundraising exercise. And in fact, it probably, like I said, we already had a fair chunk of our um, target in the, you know, from our angels. So, so really it was, it was more, more for the PR, more to build that, that ambassador, you know, that um, army of ambassadors. Mm, and exciting to get your customers involved as well and give them a sense of ownership of the brand as it moves forward. Yes, exactly. And I think a lot of our customers have signed up, which is incredible to see. And, you know, some 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 customers actually giving quite a bit, you know, and you're just overwhelmed by that. Um, and, and I think that's just brilliant. That's the power of crowdfunding. And, you know, I can't wait to see what happens when we go public and, you know, the wider world can see our brand and, um and see what happens then because obviously at the moment it's still in preview so it's a lot of uh a lot of you know contacts and people we kind of already know and customers that know us um but but I feel I feel like it's a really brilliant way to 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 create some buzz Mm, super exciting yeah it is really exciting what are the next plans then Priya I mean obviously so you're in John Lewis which is really exciting are you going to pursue more working with more retailers what are you doing kind of mm-hmm. on the UK what, yeah so one of the reasons I we're, we're sort of raising this round as well is to support that you know we've we're um we're about to launch as the Lando in Europe and again you know going back to timing that was also one of the reasons why we wanted to launch that and get that 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 up and running and the European market is four times the size of the UK and it's an amazing opportunity for us to really test a new geography without investing into expensive logistics in the post-Brexit world Um, and so we are looking at and the raise is going to support widening more of our distribution and we see this as a really great way to um, build our brand awareness so John Lewis is is fantastic because they've got 12 million customers and we get to benefit from that, um, you know, that halo effect. And so for us, we're not looking to, you know, have a thousand stockists all over the world. What we're looking for is strategic partners that will help really um, build brand awareness, um, help us in new geographies, but really, again, support our online business. You know, we we will always remain are um, sort of D to C online first. Um, and a lot of these stockists are, are there to support that. And I think that it echoes where customers are going. You know, customers want an omni-channel approach. They want to be able to shop online, but that doesn't mean we should ignore physical. And um, in particularly in the post-pandemic world, people are returning to a bit more of a normal of a normality with respect to being out and about. And and whilst I don't, I totally understand why the likes of Topshop and Debenhams didn't survive the pandemic, I think it, it is opening up um, businesses to the challenge of this new world. And how do we make physical exciting? How do we make um, that whole kind of shopping experience in, in a retail store more exciting and more attractive to customers? And I think that's some of the challenges that we have thrown on ourselves. You know, we want to be part of, 
we don't we recognize that there is a big shift online but that doesn't mean we should ignore other ways to reach people and reach customers and you know we're we're lucky because you know we've started on that journey of partnering with retailers and we will continue to do that and physical is one way we'll look at it um geography is another and um you know big retail partners and i think that that it's important right because customers do shop at john lewis and they also shop with us and i think that we should recognize that and um and that's and that's kind of something that we will continue to do going forward and it's a big plan for us in 2022 is to kind of find more more um strategic partners and and then you know we want to obviously start looking at new categories that we can bring our new day ethos that we see as you said comfort not going away you know it, this work from home culture this sort of um blurring of lines between personal and work um is here to stay really you know i don't think you know most companies now have gone down the route of flexi working i don't think you know there's there's a lot of people talking about returning to the office five days a week which means you know things like comfort wear um lounge wear are opportunities that are going to just get bigger so what we're trying to do is um offer you know more more lounge wear hybrid pieces so underwear that is more comfortable non-wired um lounge wear looking at sleepwear this year as well so these are some of the things that we are trying to do this year to sort of opportunitize what's happening in the retail world and what what's happening in the consumer world fantastic it's so exciting i feel com com very compelled now to do two things one is to go and refresh my underwear drawer because i think <laughs> i need of your yeah. underwear and two is definitely to go and check out your crowdfunding campaign um yes please do i would you know <laughs> <laughs> and we'll put, yes. we'll put all the links in the show notes so that everybody can see them um so amazing, amazing. Thank you so much. Wishing you all the very best with your crowdfund. Thank you, Julia. Really, it's really nice gonna, to talk really to you. You're going to smash it. You've already smashed it, but you're going to you're going to totally. Fingers crossed. Fingers yeah. crossed. Yeah, yeah. Fingers crossed. But yes, it's. I mean, hope it stays this way, and it's obviously a great problem to have. So, but you know, we always want people's support. So please, please, if you can, check it out. It'll be amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time, Priya. Best of luck. No problem. Thank you for having me. Thanks for following Fundraising Stories with Female Founders. This content is all provided to you for free. So if you've enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe so you never miss another one. Enter the Arena has helped hundreds of female founders fly through pre-raise and investment and onto the exponential growth of their business. Our first-hand experience, expert guidance and proven programs help female founders unleash the Wonder Woman inside. To see if we can help you do the same, head over to www.enterthearena.co.uk. I'm Julia Elliott-Brown and I look forward to talking with you soon.